Hey, good morning. Uh, before we actually start on the sermon itself, I want to assuage any fears. Uh, if anybody is terrified at the number of fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin insert, um, I know it seems like there will be a huge amount of content uh, to the message today. That's because there is, but um, the way that I felt led to preach this passage was as an overview rather than as an in-depth look at each verse. And that's, that's not our usual approach. It's not how I typically do things. Um, but the reason we're going to do it today is that the text itself is an overview. Okay, and so today we're going to read Stephen's message before the Sanhedrin. And his speech con contains kind of a, uh, like a Reader's Digest version, you know, a succinct, condensed version of the history of God's people. From Abraham all the way up uh, to the Babylonian exile, and then it ends with an in-your-face accusation. And that's kind of where we're going we're gonna to get there. But um, anyway, since that time period that, that he covers is around a millennium and a half, um, Stephen doesn't do a lot of exposition either. In fact, he's, he's kind of telling his, his audience stuff they already know really well. And so, so why did he do it? Well, there's a reason uh, that the Holy Spirit led Stephen to say the things that he said here and for Luke to record it. I think part of that reason is to remind anybody that's reading these words that the history of God's people is actually a history of God relating to his people. And it hangs together over centuries. And I grew up, it's, it's a wonderful blessing. I grew up in a house with two godly parents. Um, but despite that, and this is kind of sad, I didn't even know until I got into Bible college that the Bible is one cohesive story. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school class this morning. Um, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is about God and how he is saving a remnant from among the peoples in the earth, uh, a people that he chooses for himself. He is saving those people. And today's passage is kind of a synopsis uh, of much of that story. So I, I felt led to use it to kind of give us a big picture perspective. So today we're going to look at the history of God and his people from about 36,000 feet. Okay? Uh, will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this, this passage today. Um, it's, uh, it's such a, such a broad um, overview, and, and I... I don't want to just, you know, go really miles wide and inch deep. So, Father, I pray that, that the right things are brought out in this message. Uh, help all of us, Lord, to be receptive soil. And I pray that, uh, that the, the seeds planted, as always, I pray they take root and bear fruit. And I thank you, God, that, uh, that you have blessed us with the opportunity to be here together today. I pray, Father, that uh, our freedom to worship in this country and to speak truth uh, boldly and faithfully, I pray, God, that that will be uh, not curtailed. Uh, anytime soon, but Lord, if it is uh, by governmental forces or whomever, I pray, Father, that we will still be bold and faithful and preach truth. And I believe, uh, Lord, that it's your will that we also live it. So give us that courage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so starting in the beginning of Acts chapter 7. Uh, remember, this is, this is after Stephen has been accused of blasphemy by the, the, the priests for preaching about Jesus um, he has been uh, accused falsely of blasphemy in a lot of ways. So, uh, verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Referring to the accusations. And Stephen said, now Notice he doesn't respond <laughs> yes or no. He gives this long soliloquy. So, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred 
and go into the land that I will show you. He's basically loosely quoting from Genesis 12. Then he went from the land of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon area, and lived in Haran. This first paragraph is about God's prompting, if you're taking notes. This is about God's prompting. That's your first PR word, okay? Stephen is referring to God's initial move in creating the nation of Israel out of all the peoples on the earth. And Abram, who's later called Abraham, or Abraham, is, is, he's widely considered to be the first Jew because he is the first guy in, in the post-flood world that the Bible talks about God, at least that I can remember, talks about God individually giving him a calling and a direction. Okay, And God is the one who chose Abram, not the other way around. And the Lord called Abram to leave behind his old life and then to go wherever it was that God was calling him to go. Okay, And so... We see uh, the beginning of God's story with his people, starting with a prompting. And after his father died, anybody remember the name of Abram's father? Close. Terah. But that was the granddad. Close. Very close. I was just wondering. I really, I, I, thought, I thought one of y'all elders would jump on me. Um, but that's all right. So uh, the beginning of his story... Uh, starts with this prompting, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So Stephen is saying this referring to Judea, referring to Jerusalem, okay? Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, although he had no child. That's the miracle baby, remember, that's to come later, Isaac. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners or, or refugees, um, journeyers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Now, that, that's a reference to Egypt, of course, but we're, we're not there yet. The main thrust of this paragraph is that God, who is forever faithful, okay, gave Abram a promise of what is to come, a promise both to him and to his descendants. We also talked about that briefly this morning. It's the promise of a great land, the promise of a great nation, and the promise of a great blessing to all nations, which, by the way, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the fact that God keeps his promises seems to be part of Stephen's point when he talks about how this, this land in which you're now living, he's referring to that, which is God's promised land. See, God doesn't lie. The Bible says he cannot lie. So when God makes a promise, you can bank on that promise. And so more than 2,000 years after God promises the land to Abram's offspring, Stephen and the people accusing him are standing in that very land. So, so after, after prompting Abram with, uh, with a calling and a direction, God made him a promise, three actually, according to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But, but then God foretells of Israel's struggles in Egypt. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God to Moses. And even after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him, that's Abram, God gave Abram the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Uh, just in case you're not familiar with this, God knows science, okay? 
And when God said, circumcise male babies on the eighth day, the eighth day after birth is the day in your entire life, gentlemen, where you will have more vitamin K in your blood than any other time in your life. That eighth day, vitamin K is a clotting agent. God knew that. I think that's very interesting. Anyway, so uh, again with Abraham. So um, Isaac, I'm sorry, did I, yes, I got that. Okay, so again with Abraham, God gave the very first of his chosen people circumcision as a practice, a practice that sets them apart from the rest of the world. Okay, no one else circumcised in ancient times. That was exclusively a Jewish thing, which had been directly given to Abraham by the Lord himself. And we know that Abraham was obedient to circumcise not only himself, but every male in his household, which was, that could not have been a fun undertaking for him. I mean, seriously, can you imagine trying to talk someone else into that? Have you ever thought about that? Abraham, uh, he must have been very highly respected by his family and by his, his, um, his household. But circumcision was God's physical sign to show that he had chosen Abraham and his offspring as a people unto himself. Stephen continues, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. He doesn't even get into who Joseph is here. Everybody at that point kind of knows that. Not all of us know who Joseph is. That's okay. Um, but jealous of Joseph, the patriarchs, in other words, the rest of his brothers, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Now, Stephen really skips ahead pretty fast here because only, he's only briefly mentioning Isaac, who was a literal miracle baby. He mentions Jacob, and, and uh, whose name was later changed to Israel, which means struggles with God. He focuses instead on the fourth generation that started uh, with Abraham. It was the guy by the name of Joseph. You remember him. He's the, he's, uh, the coat of many colors, in case you don't know. He's, he was sold into slavery. He also was falsely accused, ended up in prison for a decade, and then he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and he was put in command of Egypt all through that process. Okay, all through that process, no matter what happens with him, Joseph maintains his integrity. He does what is right the whole time. Even in spite of, of, of being falsely accused and everything else, he maintains his integrity and his obedience to God. And God rewards him with a promotion to a place of influence. Now, before you start thinking, I'm going to get into a health and wealth gospel, that ain't happening, okay? <laughs> But we are talking about what God has done in the history of his people. He promotes them. God has a, a tendency to put his people, he refers to them as the head and the rest of the nation's the tail. Okay, so now why was he given this position? I mean, was it, was it just because Joseph was such a naturally great guy that God felt like he owed him one? No, it was because God knew that he was, he was going to, his plan was to use Joseph to save lives in the coming years. And as Stephen says, there was a famine that kept Israel and his family, again, this Jacob, Israel and his family from being able to take care of themselves. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Our fathers, he's referring to the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. 
And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Now, it, it's, it's kind of frustrating to skip over the whole thing here where, where Jacob, uh, Joseph, where he messes with his brothers, you know, he kind of pranks them and, and uh, ends up revealing himself to who he is later and all that stuff. But that's not the main point here. Um, rather, the word provision comes to mind. Provision. In the midst of a time that people were on the verge of starving to death, and the entire known world, okay, God's people had enough not only to survive, but to thrive. Because God was personally taking care of them. I mean, in spite of this massive lack of food in the whole world, God kept his people satisfied. He provided for all of their needs. So, fast forward. Stephen continues. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Uh oh. I think we're seeing this right now, but what happens? When a government ignores history, history repeats. When history is ignored, when it's forgotten, there's a reason we say never forget. There's a reason we take the Lord's Supper every week. Forgetting history brings condemnation on a nation. Anyway, so this gets into that part about the promise that God made to Abraham that his descendants would become slaves. And yet on that, that dark cloud of oppression, we see on the horizon, we see God's people are experiencing proliferation. Proliferation, that's a great word. I like that word. I mean, for one thing, it has pro-life literally built right into it. And I think that's awesome. But on top of that, it, it, it means increasing in number. It means multiplying into a people group that was into the seven digits by the time Moses came into the picture. This morning we were talking about they went from 75 people to 2 million over a little over four centuries. 2 million people, okay? And uh, since God is, so God is sovereign over natural processes as well as supernatural, we can know that any rapid increase... And the number of Israelites is going to be due to God's blessing. I mean, infant mortality was still a thing back then, quite more so than it is today. But God allowed the Israelites to grow more numerous. And I think it's interesting that, that Exodus 1 tells us that as the Israelites multiplied more and more, the Egyptians got a little bit scared, and so they started to oppress them. And the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. I think that's interesting. That seems to be a theme with the people of God throughout history. When we get comfortable, our numbers grow smaller. But in hard times, we multiply. Well, as, as you probably know, uh, when a pharaoh came along that forgot history, things got nasty. As Stephen recounts, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. 
And at the time that Moses was born, and he, he, was, he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was, when he was exposed, in other words, when, when it got to the place where they couldn't keep it quiet any longer, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. How about that? That's, how's, that's, that's, we would think of that as, as ironic, wouldn't we? I mean, if you remember, the, the Egyptians were requiring the Israelites to cast their male babies into the Nile River. I want you to think about that for a moment, you know? During a time in history when, when something similar to abortion was mandated by the government, parents and midwives, if you remember that part of the story, disobeyed that wicked edict, and God blessed them for it. Even so, there was a sense in which Moses was cast into the Nile, only he was put there in a basket to prevent him from drowning. God had a plan for Moses. I, I can't help but wonder what his mom was thinking. You know, she, she coated that basket with pitch so it would float, but boy, that was a trusting move, wasn't it? But God had a plan, and he gave him protection. Not only from, from a, the natural danger that would exist from a baby in a basket in a crocodile-infested river, but, but also from the enemies that should have destroyed him upon being discovered. Instead, Pharaoh's, and I say should in the, in the fact that that's simply what they would plan to do, not that that was morally okay. But that was what any Egyptian that found this baby, that, that would be their natural reaction. Oh, look, a Hebrew baby. We should drown it. Instead, Pharaoh's daughter draws him up out of the water. That's how he got his name, Moses. It means to draw out. Draws him up out of the water and raises him as her own. And by protecting Moses who was going to be the appointed savior of the nation of Israel in a certain way. God was protecting his chosen people too. Now reading on. Uh, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. You remember this story? It wasn't like that movie Prince of Egypt where it's, oh, no, I accidentally knocked the guy up. No. He looked this way and that, killed the guy, and buried him in the sand. Okay? He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but, hey, they didn't understand. And, again, in case you're not familiar with that, Moses did that intentionally. Okay? Stephen indicates that Moses knew that he was, he was in some way going to help the Jewish nation, but his method wasn't God's method. Interesting, huh? You remember how the, the Jews believed that their Messiah that was going to come was going to come in force physically and take over the nation and overcome Rome? It's not what happened. Apparently that's what Moses thought he was supposed to do. It's not how God planned it. In fact, Moses had an attitude of presumption because he apparently thought he knew the plan that God had ordained for him. But he was clearly mistaken, and his mistake ends up shooting him in the foot. And that, that, that's a common theme when we act on presumption. By the way, you, you'll notice the asterisk there. Um, the asterisk is there because the main point in this paragraph is about something one of God's people did rather than something God himself did, and that's important for later. Okay, So just know that. Anyway, so what happened? You remember what happened? After Moses killed the guy? He ran away. Pharaoh found out. Yeah. 
Pharaoh found out. He said he was going to kill Moses, and so, so Moses runs. And on the following day, uh, he, that's Moses, appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. See, that, that was a rude awakening for Moses because he, he was planning on being the hero, right? You know, he, he, he's, instead he's the goat. He's on the run. You know, and he ends up a refugee in the land of Midian for how long? Anybody remember? 40 years. It's a long time. And, and this is important. God used this time as preparation to fulfill his holy purpose for Moses and his people. There's plenty of time to get that presumptuous nature out of his system and learn some humility, right? I mean, for one thing, he marries a wife. And most of us know, you marry somebody, you're going to end up being humbled to some degree because you're going to find out a lot of what you do is wrong. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I'm looking at my wife. She's smiling. She knows. Okay? He marries a wife. He, he works for her dad. That's another way to uh, get a little humility. Um, I've done that before. Uh, he raises a couple of kids. It's another way to learn some humility. Okay? This is one of the first of many times that God uses a wilderness period to get his people to listen to him. And it certainly wasn't the last. You know, you ever been in a wilderness period in your life? Where God was shaping you for what's coming next? I have. You know, you spend some time kind of feeling like you're on the outs and you really don't know what's going on. You feel like you're drifting. God knows our wilderness period is part of his plan. Are, are you guys okay? Y'all doing okay? Yeah. I realize this is a lot. We're going through a lot really fast here. But if anybody needs like seventh inning stretch, hop up. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, anyway, we're halfway there. We've gone through all the PR words spanning from Abraham to Moses' time in the wilderness. Now we're going to change it up. Okay, Stephen goes on. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he drew near to look. And as he did that, there came a voice of the Lord. It said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Now here we see a pattern. And it didn't start here, nor does it, it end here, of God's revelation of himself to his people. Okay? He speaks to his chosen one out of a bush that's burning but not consumed. And it's during the, the following dialogue with Moses that God reveals the very name by which he chooses to be called, which is, I am that I am. We say Yahweh, meaning self-existent one. Okay? And in referencing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he reveals himself as the same God that's been dealing with his chosen people this whole entire time. He's been keeping them on track this whole time for his master plan. Okay? Then Stephen says, The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, wait. I mean, didn't, didn't Moses leave Egypt? <laughs> like, isn't that where he ran away from? He did not respond well to this, did he? You know, he's, he's trying to avoid Egypt, and, and yet God's plan 
wasn't for Moses to stay in Midian because God's plan wasn't for Israel to stay in slavery. And so he drew Moses out once again. God was ready for a redirection of his people from the land of Egypt into the land that he had promised Abraham six and a half centuries before. Now again, God is sovereign. And God has, he has a, a sovereign, he is omnipotent. He has authority over everything. He has the sovereign right to determine where his people will go. And that goes for today just as much as it did back then. Just bear that in mind for your own life, okay? So anyway, after some, some serious hemming and hawing, uh, Moses and his brother Aaron, they go back to Egypt to set God's people free. And then 10 plagues later, that's what happened. Okay, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for, there's that number again, 40 years. There's a really interesting word here that I think ought to catch our attention, okay? The word is redeemer. Moses is called a redeemer of God's people because he was God's instrument of redemption from the enemy. Redemption from the enemy. And again, this is probably just the best known of a gazillion examples in the Old Testament where God redeems his people from an enemy. Okay? And then there's, of course, the final redemption that occurs in the New Testament. Don't worry, we'll get there. But, but let's keep reading. Stephen adds a little more detail. It probably seems unnecessary to us. No one in that crowd is, is saying, like, which Moses? I'm confused. Who are you talking about? What? Who's Moses? Right? But at the same time, he's doing this for a purpose. Okay? The Holy Spirit's not done yet. He says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. Who's he talking about? Wow. Moses spoke about Jesus. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. This is interesting. Uh, who else was a prophet? spoke with angels on mountaintops and passed along words of life, but did it a whole lot better. Anybody? What? Yay! Jesus, yes, thank you. Moses was what scholars call a type or a representation of Jesus, the Messiah who, who, was, who was to come. Moses was sent as a savior to his people. And even today, to, to people that are Jewish today, in a religious sense, that are not Christian Jews, that aren't Messianic Jews, they still view Moses as Savior. And they believe in a future Messiah to come. Unfortunately, they miss the fact that he already came and fulfilled all those prophecies in the Old Testament. But Scripture says there's a veil over their hearts, a veil over their eyes. Evie, walk forwards. Thank you. Boy, did I lose my train of thought there. Uh, of course, we know that Moses was, was more uh, the shadow than the substance, but there's still a lot of parallels 
between Moses and Jesus. I mean, there's a reason that the Jews revered Moses more than any other person in the Old Testament. But anyway, so Stephen then shares a little of the darker history of the nation of Israel here in verse 39. He says, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. Remember that? Even his own sister and brother turned against him at one point. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice of the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Do you remember that story? You remember Aaron's response when Moses is like, what are you thinking? And he's like, I don't know. The people gave me all this gold and I threw it in a fire and the calf came out. Really? <laughs> That's like a toddler lie bizarre. But Moses was so angry, he came down with the, the commandments. He smashed the, the tablets of stone on the ground. We all know what happened then, right? Well, maybe we don't. And that's, that's okay if you don't. We'll learn. Bad things from our perspective. God was angry. Moses was angry. A lot of people died as a result of that. And listen, it's all because of rebellion against God's will. Rebellion against God's will leads to death. Even after God did all this stuff on their behalf, you know, his, his people, they, they tend to be fickle, don't they? Don't we? Yeah. Note the asterisk again on rebellion. Now, now this next part is interesting uh, because after giving just this one example of God's people rebelling, Stephen then crams almost a thousand years worth of history into the next paragraph, but it serves as kind of a pattern of how God, God deals with his, pe his people whenever, whenever they're consistently rebellious, okay? But God turned away, Stephen says, and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. He's quoting from Amos, by the way. Uh, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch. Pause there. Moloch was a pagan false god who they envisioned as a bull. And they would build a great brass statue of this demonic entity and they would build a furnace in this statue and they would sacrifice infants to this monstrosity by roasting them alive in the statue's hands. And they did this in order to, to ensure a good harvest or to get victory in battle or to curry favor. And so uh, here's where I want to go with this. I'm not going to rabbit trail too long, but just listen to me. Even back then, children were being sacrificed on the altars of perceived survival, success, and convenience. The church of Satan today is pushing for religious exemption to the heartbeat law. Satan has always been a fan of child sacrifice. Anyway, you took the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. What a sad statement that is. I mean, God is 
perfect. He is loving. His, his faithfulness is, is never ending. He treated his people so well and they kept turning their backs. By the time of the Babylonian exile, which was the second exile, it's the exile of, of the tribe of Judah and the partial tribes of, of Benjamin and, and, and Ephraim, or excuse me, Manasseh, I believe it is. We'll, we'll get into that in Sunday school for those of y'all that are like, what are you talking about? We'll get there. Uh, most of the nation of Israel at that point had completely and irrevocably turned their backs on God. And God said, okay, thy will be done. And he turned his back on them. The history of God's people often focuses on his rejection of those who totally reject him. Now that said, his rejection of his people is always and only temporary because, because God consistently, faithfully preserves a remnant of his people. Because he's, he's faithful to keep his promises, both, both in regard to mercy and in regard to judgment. God is faithful to keep his promises. And when it, comes, when it comes to individuals, those who come to him, he faithfully preserves, just as he does with nations. He faithfully preserves us when we come to him. But those who persist in rejecting him, he ultimately rejects. However, his true people, throughout history, from beginning to end, his true people consist of those who belong to him by grace through faith just as Abraham was justified by faith. Anyway, back to Stephen's speech. Uh, upon summarizing that huge chunk of history, Stephen goes back and he mentions a couple of things. And personally, I think he felt led to do this by the Holy Spirit because uh, uh, really, because of the false accusation that he had, had spoken against God's temple. He, he hadn't. And, and he seems to kind of redirect to this, this quick narrative of how the temple came to be. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Remember, that was the tabernacle, right? You remember that? It was this big tent that they carried around. They would set up every time they stopped. And the tabernacle um, was, was called their tent of witness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So God told them how to make the tabernacle. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, uh, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. That's more of that protection of providence there. Uh, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. It, it's, again, a lot of condensed history here, but it's interesting to me that Stephen points out that the tabernacle was built exactly to spec. Once again, who's spec? God's spec, right, okay? It was God. So God gave Moses a very precise pattern on how to build the tabernacle. And what else did God give to Moses to pass along to people as part of that? Anybody? Starts with R-E. Religion. Yes. Thank you. Religion. I, I want to say this officially, okay? The word religion has gotten a bad rap in the last few decades because, because people view it as nothing but a bunch of rules and rituals. But let's not forget that God does, in fact, give his people rules and rituals to follow. Right? I mean, baptism and the Lord's Supper are good rituals that God has commanded. And giving and praying and helping others and faithfulness and a whole ton of other things are good rules that he also commands. Okay, so, so this religion, their entire religion that was given to them by God, this formalized 
doctrine of life and worship that God had given his people. That is a good thing. And the temple was symbolic of that. You know, the first of God's laws to his people essentially starts in Exodus where he's referring to, to the temple, but it continues on into Leviticus. You know, it continues on through parts of Numbers. It continues into Deuteronomy. Deuter actually, the word Deuteronomy means uh, basically canon again or law again. It's when Moses reiterates the law to the people of God. So it was, it's the, the temple, the tabernacle, um, until it became actually built in one place, which then it was the temple. That was the pinnacle of the Jewish religious life. And it, 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 it was ex exactly what they thought of when they thought of their religion. They thought of the temple, but the temple was not God's end-all, be-all of, of how he chooses to connect with his people. In fact, in verse 47, Stephen, he stresses this. He says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? Now, why would Stephen stop and, and say that? I, I think it's indicative of a very deep truth, okay? The temple is great and God designed it for people to build, but it wasn't really for him. He called it his, his dwelling place, but it wasn't really built for him. It was to provide a place for people to worship that rightly inspired uh, awe and where sacrifices could be made that would prefigure the ultimate sacrifice that was to come. And it was a place where, where people could go, where they could, they could pour out their hearts to their creator and their protector, their savior. It, it, hints, it hints to me that God's ultimate purpose is to have a relationship with us. There's a reason for the religion. It's to reveal God to us so that he can have a relationship with us that he desires. You know, just like the temple is not a, a sufficient house for the Lord Almighty, there's, there's nothing we can give God that God needs. And yet he desires a relationship with us. Not for his sake, but for our sakes, because, because he loves us. He knows that the best thing for us is to know him. That's the greatest joy that we can have. So this is, this is what the history of God's people had been leading up to all along, okay? The kind of perfect relationship that he had had with Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. But we just, we keep pushing back. We keep kicking against the goads. And that's where Stephen goes. I'm going I'm to read it in the spirit that I think he said it, okay? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. I bet he was worked up. I bet he was angry. And I bet he was sad. As he spoke these words. Since we know that he was speaking by the Holy Spirit, I, I have to believe that he said that both with righteous wrath of God and also with heartbreaking sorrow of God. 
And the final paragraph of, of Stephen's recounting of his people's history is a lament because of their resistance to the Holy Spirit. There's that asterisk again. Despite every entreaty of the Lord, every avenue that God pursued, his people collectively resisted the Holy Spirit. They broke his laws, they killed his prophets, and they betrayed and murdered his son. What a staggeringly sad history. But friends, let's not forget that those of us who believe in Jesus were once just as they are. Our hearts were, were, were once just as dead. I mean, look at this history again. Let, let, let's focus for just a minute here, or a few seconds at least, on, on man's contribution to God's history with his people. This is what we have done. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? You look at that, you say, oh yeah, we've been presumptuous, rebellious. Resistant. But if we look instead at what he has done, it's a whole different ballgame. When we look at what he has done, we recognize the incredible faithfulness of God and the power of his loving kindness. But even, even then, there's kind of one of the, you remember that Sesame Street song? You know, one of these things is not like the other. You know, it's, do you remember that? One of these, you look at it and you go, hmm, that word doesn't quite seem to fit in with all the others right? There's still a word that scares us, a word that sets off alarm bells. Which one is it? Rejection. I know that many, maybe even in this room, fear the rejection of God. It's tempting to think that God will reject you because you made a mistake in the past or maybe because of thoughts that you still have today or, or maybe because of sin that you struggle with despite agonizing over it. And I want you to listen to me. The key to overcoming that fear is the, the last paragraph. It's in the last paragraph that we looked at this morning. Stephen refers to the coming of the righteous one. The coming of of the righteous one. He is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is the rock of salvation for those who cling steadfastly to him. The rejection of God is reserved for those who reject God. But his rejection is never for those who remain in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will in no way cast him out. His righteousness is imputed to all who fully put their trust in him. So listen to me, church. Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus Christ. Cling to his perfect life. Cling to Jesus, to his, his dual nature as, as being fully man and fully God. Cling to his death on the cross. Cling to his resurrection from the dead. Cling to his promises. Cling to Jesus because when we remain in him, then his life is in us. And look at what he's done for, look, look at what he's done for us and what he continues to do. So t listen, today each of us is at a crossroads. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all looking forward to the rest of, of our lives on earth, however long or however short they may be. Are we going to trust in the God who, who has done all this 
and who does this today, who continues to do this in our lives? Are we going to trust in him or are we going to trust in, in, in ourselves, you know, in our rebellion, in our presumption, in our resistance? Friends, set those things aside and cast yourselves on the glorious mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 